Let me invite you to turn with me back to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians 1. A few moments ago, we listened to the choir. I noticed the bulletin says vocal ensemble, and I suppose we could still say it's that, but I'm glad it looks a little more like choir. It's also good to see a number of you each week over the last few weeks, just seeing people I haven't seen in a while here, and I appreciate that. That's an encouragement. But we listen to the choir sing some familiar words to many of us, and uh, one phrase in particular caught my attention. My memory's correct. It's the third verse of the song that they were singing, and it says this, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. As I was thinking about that in light of the text that the Lord has us in this morning, my fear, my concern is that if we were honest, there are times where if we sang truthfully to where we live, we would have to say, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I take it for granted. I'm really selfish and think about the fact that I get to go to heaven without giving consideration to what obedience should look like this week. But in light of the text that the Lord has had us in last week and had us in again, me preparing for our time together this morning, this evening, I thought, what appropriate words. It would be wonderful if everybody walked away from this morning and this evening going, when I think about this truth... I can hardly take it in because I really think there's a number of appropriate responses whereby sometimes when we look at the kind of truth that we're going to consider in Colossians 1, really we ought to just be moved to tears. Or maybe on the other hand, we ought to be awed in silence and the words just aren't there. Or maybe on the other hand, in light of what we saw even last Sunday night, we go, well, I got to tell somebody. I got to shout for joy. Like, that's okay. I just woke some of you up. I can't believe it. I have to sing with the choir. My God, how great thou art. Because our minds are blown by the goodness of God on display. If you remember the flow of text with me in Colossians 1, Paul's been praying for these believers that he's never met, but they've trusted Christ. He's heard about that, verses 3 through 8, and he says, I'm praying for you that you would live in a way that is worthy of Christ, that you would experience the fullness of God's will in life. And he spells out particularly what it looks like to walk worthy, saying, I'm praying that you guys would be fruitful in everything that you do, that you'd be productive, bringing forth fruit to the glory of God in everything that you do, that you would be increasing in your knowledge and understanding of who God is, not just intellectually, but experientially in life, because you see it. That you would be strengthened by Him, because we don't have enough strength and energy in and of ourselves that you would be strengthened by him to endure everything that comes your way and do it with joy. 
And then we came to that last point in verse 12, that you would be giving thanks to God the Father. That you would be giving thanks to God the Father. And then he begins, in essence, here's a bunch of reasons why you should give thanks to God the Father. If we were going to think about this like a, a basketball game, perhaps, and again, I don't mean any sacrilege at all, but think of it as a basketball game or maybe your favorite television series. Uh, last week was the first episode. Here's why you should give thanks. Or last week was the first quarter. You're like, why are you going here? Because my concern is that some of you are going to watch the first half of the game and miss the third quarter by not coming tonight. Some of you are going to stop in the second episode and miss the third one and pick up in the fourth next Sunday and go, what took place in the third? How did we get here? Just a little side note, maybe a little thought for you. I wouldn't want you or me to have incomplete praise, incomplete giving of thanks, because we miss the truth. In fact, in all honesty, what caught my attention in prepping this week, more so than what we look at this morning, is what we see this evening. But it's something that often when we get to the truth that we see, we kind of treat it as, well, that's doctrinal truth. That tells us about Jesus' person and who he is. But it connects, obviously, in the text, but connects beautifully to what we're going to see this morning. Why do you give thanks? Did you give thanks? I mean, last Sunday morning, we talked about it this way. You know, we used that familiar question. That if we only gave, got tomorrow what we gave thanks to God for today, what would we have? I hope we give thanks for the work of God the Father, for the work of Christ His Son. Last week, we said it this way. Glory in the gracious work of God the Father. And I, I won't review every detail, but I'll remind you there were three reasons why we should glory in the work of God the Father in the text of Scripture in verses 12 and 13. We glory in the work of God the Father because He qualified us as inheriting saints. He, he's given us this inheritance of the saints in the light. He's marked out a place for us in eternity if we've been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. To say, here is your home in heaven. And as we refer to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, your heart hasn't dreamed of what God has prepared there for those that love him. We can glory in the work of God the Father because he qualified us as inheriting saints. Secondly, we saw that he rescued us from domineering sin. He delivered us from the power of darkness. We no longer have the master of sin. We don't have to give in anymore. What a reason to glory in the gracious work of God the Father. He qualified us as inheriting saints. He rescued us from domineering sin. And then he reassigned us to his beloved son. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. He didn't leave us to kind of go it on our own. Okay, I set you free from sin. Have at it. See ya. He said, no, let me put you in the care of my loving son who is in control of all. Glory in the work, the gracious work of God the Father. But now, Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, shifts focus to talk about, well, what does it look like if we're in the kingdom of that dear son. And so today, I want to remind us, secondly, that we glory in the atoning work of God the Son. 
we not only glory in the gracious work of God the Father, we glory in, we give thanks for, we praise because of the atoning work of God the Son. Keep in mind the problems that Paul is addressing in Colossians. This takes you back quite some time now, but Paul's addressing this idea that, well, you have to keep these rules, this legalism, in order to be satisfied in your spiritual life. Well, you got to look for something greater. There's got to be something more. Maybe if you worship angels, and we move to kind of this mysticism that he addresses in Colossians chapter 2 around verse 18 or so. Maybe if you do that too, there'll be deeper meaning. Or if you just chase after some kind of greater knowledge, you'll be satisfied in life. And Paul is writing to correct that those problems, the Spirit of God through his pen is saying, you are complete in Christ. Walk in him. Set your affection on things above because you've been risen with him. And he's focusing them on their completion in Christ. Their satisfaction uh, in life in Christ. And so now we're drawn to focus on Christ, to glory in the work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. Last week, we could summarize it this way. We saw God's unilateral action in our salvation. This week, we're reminded of God's unfathomable affection in our salvation as well. Here's the work of his dear son through his blood. We get to verse 14. This morning, we look at verse 14, and we're going to consider what he, Jesus, has done. Tonight, we're going to look at who he is. I don't know if you've ever had one of those experiences in life where you encountered someone, you talked to someone, maybe they did something for you, and you came to find out later who it was that you actually just met. Like, whoa, I didn't know. I didn't know that about them. They didn't tell me that about them. And in essence, that's what the Spirit of God is doing here in Scripture, saying, Here's what God did for you through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he comes around and says, now let me remind you of who he is. But in our very self-oriented mindset, I'm afraid far too many of us are content to miss the third quarter. Far too many of us are content just to stop at verse 14 and to go, that's great, he did that for me, thank you, Lord. Instead of being awed and humbled when you go, who is it that did that for me? Because it's really astounding when we think about who he is in light of what he's done. So this morning, consider with me what Christ has done in verse 14. First, I would remind you, we've talked about this truth much, but every time the text brings it up, we're going to hit it again. We want to say his work was done personally. His work was done personally. In whom? In Christ we have redemption through his blood. Why is that important? Again, we're talking about an all-powerful, sovereign God. We're talking about the creator of this world. He did not say, through this other prophet, through this grand program that I'm going to implement, through this plan that I've put together, through these possessions I'm going to accomplish, Or, as many of the religions of the world teach, if you just do, he says, no. Here's the work of Christ the Son. He did this 
personally for you. God himself took on flesh. This isn't just another sacrifice in another part of the Old Testament law, right? Because you hear some of what I say, and you're like, well, why would God do that? Why would he use a program to accomplish? Well, you know, there were a lot of laws in the Old Testament. There were a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. There were a lot of priests, and that was glorious, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, even though it was a ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3 says. It just says you fail, you fail, you fail, you fail. I don't know about you, but I don't like being constantly reminded of my failures. But the Old Testament law did exactly that. Time for another sacrifice. Okay, here's another feast. We've got three of them to make. Because we fail, we fall short, we fall short, we fall short. And God did not say, well, I'll implement a new program since you blew it. I mean, he, he kind of did. We call it a new covenant. But it's through his son. He personally came to deal with my sin and yours. This was the work of the divine person. The creator himself humbled himself and became part of his creation. He did not act authoritatively from a distance. He chose to personally act for our salvation through his son. There are all kinds of implications when you think about this biblically and theologically. When we realize that God's work was done personally through his son, we recognize that his holiness and justice is satisfied. If it's left to you and to me, we'll never reach God's holiness and justice on our own. We can't take sin and somehow try to do enough right to make up for that sin. But God acted personally in holiness and justice to deal with our sin. Secondly, God's power and sovereignty was on display because sin will not win, as we just remembered a few weeks ago now as we celebrated Jesus' resurrection. For your life and for mine, ultimately sin would win. Not just in day-to-day temptation, but at the end of the day, when the wage of sin is paid and death occurs, we don't overcome. But because God acted personally through His Son, it's overcome. God's power and sovereignty are on display. But it's not just His holiness and justice, His power and sovereignty. Certainly, as we consider here, it's His love and mercy because God the Son became a man. His work was not only done personally, God's work is done presently. Read the next words in verse 14 with me, in whom we have. Now grammatically we read that, and for those who are maybe grammar nerds, we go, oh, it's a perfect tense, we have. And that's wonderful theological truth. Like perfect tense, action in the past, ongoing results in the present, is that true with salvation? Yes, it's true. And The Bible often uses perfect tense. If you were looking in Strong's Concordance or maybe your Bible software, this this is actually a present tense verb, which becomes pretty meaningful in context. In other words, we are having right now redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. His death occurred in the past. His blood was shed in the past. We at some point, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, there was some point in life where you acknowledged your sin before God and believed on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so you are having that salvation. But right now, the Spirit of God points us in a very real, very present way to say, 
You are having this right now. It's still true. You need a reason to give thanks. It's not because of what took place way back there. It's because it's still true right now. So rejoice. Glory in the work of Christ the Son. Yes, you are saved. If you believed on Jesus Christ alone, you are saved from sin eternally. That's awesome truth, right? You look forward to the day when the battle with sin is completely over and the tears are wiped from your eyes to experience that. But truly, with what is being said in the text right now, you are saved from sin presently. In whom we are having redemption through his blood. It means we can live differently right now. But I think to fuller grasp, more fully grasp this, we need to look at this idea of redemption. We say God's work is done personally, it's done presently, but it is done redemptively. Redemption speaks of a payment that has been made to secure release or freedom. A payment that has been made to secure release or freedom. In other words, life is being given back. It's being restored through redemption. You know, in Greco-Roman culture, it could very well have been used to refer to the price that has been paid for a slave to be set free. The Old Testament uses a similar concept to rescue an individual from a wrong that has been done. To say, here's what's been, the, the wrong that's been committed, but in order to free them from obligation, here's the price of redemption to set them free. Christ here, Jesus' work was done redemptively to free us from sin. From our rebellious disobedience against a sovereign creator. It's being expressed presently. Remember, right now, you're freed from that. You have redemption from sin that was your master that you gave into time and time again. You're now free to live for him. We can glory in the atoning work of God the Son because his work was done personally. He became a man. It is true presently, but it also occurred redemptively, setting us free. And yet, certainly what should catch us is that forth, his work was done sacrificially. Sacrificially. This points to the reality and depth of the payment for redemption. In some ways, the analogy fails, very much so. Uh, but you know, you hear someone who is arrested today and bond is set. Like, here's what is owed for that person to be released until this trial occurs. And so here's how much money. It's like, ooh, that's a lot. That price is high. Think with me for a moment. Try to wrap your mind around what the text tells us here. The price to set you and me free was the sovereign creator's blood. Think about the sacrifice of what's taking place. Again, it, it echoes what we heard sung when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die to shed his blood. I scarce can take it in. First Peter reminds us of this same truth in chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with silver and gold 
from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. It's like this is not some kind of material possession or even past tradition. This isn't some kind of religious activity or something that you just simply paid off. It can't be bought. All of the practices of the past can't earn this. But as the text continues on there in 1 Peter, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, completely perfect for us to set us free. God has been that merciful to us, that good to us. Glory in the atoning work of God the Son. His work was done personally, presently, redemptively, sacrificially. And then fifth, or depending on how you want to make your outline, fifth and sixth, God's word was God's work through the Son was done justly and mercifully. I said this to you last week. It's almost hard to separate these concepts out, so I want us to get them both together. Christ's work that we're supposed to give thanks for was done justly and mercifully. Because we hit this phrase, even the forgiveness of sins. He's paid the price, speaking of the just side, so that we could be released from the wrongs we have done, speaking of the mercy side. Again, when we talk about mercy, it's I'm not giving someone what they duly deserve. Judgment is, uh, has been earned. Judgment is right. And yet here, you're going to be released from that judgment because it's already been paid. Justice is satisfied. The word for forgiveness here means to send away, to release, to cancel, to say, that's gone. I'm no longer holding that against you. It'll be a little while before we get there, but I love the way that it's pictured in Colossians 2, why this can be done justly and mercifully. Because it says there, he's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. It's like, here's your criminal record with all the sins that you've committed, all the times you've broken the law. He's like, that's blotted out. It's clean. Your criminal record is gone. It's expunged. But not just because of, well, someone just wanted to eliminate it. No, because justice was actually paid. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross nailing it to his cross. I told you last week, I'm going to say it again, just to remind us, justice and mercy have to be coupled in our minds because we love the mercy side, but sometimes we don't contemplate what it takes to rightly get to mercy. To rightly get to mercy, to justly get to mercy, means that it still, the sin still has to be paid for According to God and his integrity of being, that means blood has to be shed. If blood is not shed, you cannot be released from your sins. They cannot be canceled out. But here we're told, hey, be giving thanks. You've been brought into the kingdom of his dear son because it's in him that you have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of your sins so that we can rejoice in even truth from the Old Testament, like Psalm 103 that paints this so well. In verse 12 where it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. 
He can look at me in spite of my sin and say, you are righteous, you meet my standard, I view you as holy because of my sin, Jesus Christ. I I don't see sin there because it's paid for. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You say, you're forgiven. You're released. You're not held accountable for that anymore because of his blood that was shed. Again, we live in a sin-cursed world. Wrongs abound all the time. And we on our own can't right all wrongs. You ever said something unkind or mean and everything in you wished you could take it back? And the best you can do is like, I am am so sorry. Will you please release me for my error? Will you release me from my sin? Will you let this go? Because we can't do enough work to somehow make up for it. Thankfully, God did not say, in your efforts, you will be redeemed and potentially forgiven from your sins. If you come to church enough, or you do enough good works, or you give enough money, or you treat people kindly, He didn't pin any of that on us. Glory in the work of God the Father, but glory in the atoning work of Christ His Son. Because forgiveness is possible because His blood was shed. If that blood had not been shed, forgiveness would not be granted. Can I just as well remind you of a very simple but very biblical application? As you seek to, you know, not primary application for today, glory in the work of Christ. But one of the ways that we do that is by treating others the way we've been treated. We do great injustice to a text like this in the work of Christ if he says, I'm releasing you of the wrongs that you committed against me. And then we turn around and I can't believe they said that to me. I can't believe they did that to me. I will not let it go. Matthew 18, at the end of the chapter, spells that exact scenario out. Won't take time to turn there, but again, you have the king who counts his debts and finds an incredibly unpayable debt. And as the man comes to him for what he is owed, he chooses to release that man. It's like, whoa! And then that man does something, that released, forgiven man does the unthinkable and turns to someone who owes very little and says, you must pay. I will not let you go. It is a wonderful testimony to what God has done that we see here in the text. When we are wronged, And we turn around and say, you know what, I forgive you. I will release you of that wrong. And it comes up from time to time, people are like, well, what does it it mean to forgive? You know, I I can't let it go. I I, I remember, I can't forget, because you have those little cliches, forgive and forget, and that doesn't really work. You know, God's omniscient, right? But forgiveness is a personal choice. It's a decision. 
that says, I'm going to release you of the wrongs against me and treat you as though it never happened. That's hard. Aren't you glad that you have a Savior who releases you of the wrong that you committed and treats you as though it never happened? That is why, in a verse we often use with children, but sometimes miss as adults, we say, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving others, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Part of the way that we glory in the atoning work of Christ is by turning to others when they wrong us and say, you know what, it's okay. God's forgiven me far more. It really is okay. I'm not going to hold you accountable. God held me accountable. It would have eternal ramifications. Gladly. I'll let it go. And not just like categorically one time, but when temptation comes, like, hey, do you remember what they did? You know what? I made the decision. I'm letting it go. Right? I'm glad God doesn't second guess his forgiveness. He says, you're declared righteous. You're forgiven. It's taken care of. Like, we struggle with that more. Like, Satan and temptation beats us up like, yeah, see, you failed God. And God's going, no, 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 that's not true. I forgave. We have incredible reason to glory in the work of Christ the Son. Through his work, God has paid the price for our redemption. He's mercifully forgiven our sins. And so we should be giving thanks. If we don't, we're not walking worthy. But I would remind you, like we read in Luke 18, that ingratitude is very common. Right? Ten lepers are healed, and one comes back, and Christ says, where are the other nine? Were there not ten lepers that were cleansed? There are many who trust Christ as Savior, and God mercifully, graciously, wonderfully, incomprehensibly forgives, redeems. But the way that you walk worthy, the way that I walk worthy is we're giving thanks unto the Father. We're also giving thanks because of the work of the Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. But who is it that forgave you? as we continue reading into verse 15, 16, even 17, which we won't get to tonight, or 18, which we won't get to tonight, he continues to say, look at who he is. Look at who he is. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this text, the way that you have challenged my heart this week to give praise to you, to give praise to the, for the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, don't know the spiritual situation of each one that's here this morning. If there would be one who hasn't yet been redeemed by the blood of Christ, I pray that today they would understand their sin, their offense before you, and choose to believe on Christ alone to be saved. Lord, for believers here, I pray that you would stir our hearts once more, that we would glory in the work that you've done through your Son, that... uh, we would experience the freedom of our redemption, being able to now serve you wholeheartedly because of what you've done. But to also value deeply, to practice ourselves personally, the forgiveness that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray.